Welcome to Horses and Bayonets, the podcast where we discuss geopolitical and security developments. I am fortunate to be joined in today's episode by Mayank Adlaka. Mayank is currently pursuing his second master's at the London School of Economics, focusing on the diplomatic history of India-China relations since the 1950s. He has previously undertaken work with a variety of think tanks and intergovernmental organizations, including the Observer Research Foundation and UNESCO, where he has analyzed both the domestic and international impact of the India-China border dispute. In this episode, we discuss the border clashes between India and China, situating them within a broader context of geopolitical relationships. We look at the applicability of the security dilemma to explain their recent tensions and explore the common interests they have, as well as some paths forward to de-escalation. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, James. So today I wanted to talk to you about the border clashes between India and China in 2020. The most recent development of this is that a Chinese soldier was captured by the Indian army and taken into custody on the 8th of January in 2021, prompting calls from China for their immediate return. This follows deadly clashes in June, which were the first to result in casualties for over 45 years. And talks to de-escalate the situation have been ongoing, but this latest development suggests maybe we should be a bit pessimistic about their current development. Regional tensions between India and China are incredibly complex and need to take into consideration the historical context as well as recent geopolitical and economic developments. Maybe it's best to start with the context. Can you give us some background? Sure. Um, Maybe it's best to start with a geographical context. So India and China share a long boundary of about 4,000 kilometers in the Himalayan region, which is actually quite cold and harsh. And just for cartographic simplicity, the boundary is divided in three sectors, the western, the middle, and the eastern sector. The western sector comprises of Ladakh. The middle sector is next to Nepal. And the eastern sector covers the area of Arunachal Pradesh and Sikkim. And what we're going to be discussing today is zooming into the western sector. Yeah, thanks for that. I think it's so easily forgotten that these clashes are happening thousands and thousands of meters up in the air and they've actually demilitarized the zone so these aren't clashes with guns these are clashes with clubs with spikes and people get thrown off mountains it's very difficult terrain to operate in so after that geographical context could you give a historical overview of the relations between the two countries right the india china story really begins in the early 50s, maybe in 1949, you could say, when India first recognized the People's Republic of China. And uh, in the following year, both countries established diplomatic relations. So, in fact, the early 50s were actually quite positive for both countries because they signed the Panchil Agreement, which was the five principles of peaceful coexistence. And um, at least the mood in India was quite positive. You know, the watchwords of the time was Hindi, Chini, Bhai, Bhai, which means India, China are brothers. But of course, by the late 50s, the underlying issues in the relationship really caught up. And these issues were one, about the sovereignty of Tibet, and two, about the undemarcated boundary dispute, which eventually culminated into war in 1962. So for about 15 years after the war, both countries were sort of not talking to each other, diplomatic relations were cut off, and the uptick in relations really came in 1976, 
when diplomatic re- relations were restored and foreign visits were were resumed. But this is not to say that everything was, of course, hunky-dory. There were conflicts and quite violent clashes. For example, there was a violent incident in 1986, which is known as the Sam Dorongchu incident. But what was different this time compared to 1962 was that they were able to reach a modus vivendi, a way to cool boundary tensions. So the agreements that came after the 1988 sort of visits between the two countries was that one was the 1993 agreement and the other was the 1996 agreement, both of which in essence tried to keep the boundary issue on the back burner and focus on other aspects of the relationship, like the economic relationship between the two countries. And the 1996 agreement was the one that sort of prohibited the use of arms in the Himalayan boundary, because then if an incident were to happen, it might just spiral out of control. So that's why, as you mentioned, um, soldiers now use clubs to actually fight each other. And those agreements really kept the peace till about 2012, I would say after which signs of deterioration were quite prominent in the relationship. There was a border clash in 2013, which was the Depsang incident, then 2014 in Chumar, 2017 in Doklam, and now 2020 in the western sector in Pangangso Lake, in Gogra Hot Springs, and the Galvan Valley. So this is just to bring the listeners up to speed with the history between India and China. So it seems, from what you're saying, that there has been an escalation in recent years that differs from developments in the relations we've seen between the two countries for quite a while now. One of the ways that I think it's quite interesting to think about the India-China relationship is through the lens of the security dilemma. I've seen a lot of arguments that claim it has strong explanatory power over the relationship, but others have suggested that India and China have such mutually exclusive goals that this isn't a security dilemma at play at all, but just a clear conflict of interests. The applicability or not of the security dilemma does have significant implications for whether or not or how the conflict can de-escalate. For listeners who are unfamiliar with the security dilemma, it was coined by realist thinker Jonathan Hertz in 1950 and essentially posits that even two countries that have mutually compatible goals or even common interests may be brought to conflict because the measures one country takes to bolster its own security can be interpreted by another country as an aggressive move. So country A increases its own security, country B sees this as a threat and in return increases its own security, which in turn sparks A to further bolster its original defenses, and we go on and on and on. Some academics have claimed that the security dilemma is a constant in the world. Others have suggested that by increasing cooperation and understanding, uncertainty and therefore the security dilemma can be reduced. So I actually wanted to start with some ways in which the two countries could be seen as having mutually compatible goals, uh, mutually compatible objectives in areas where the two countries should be cooperating. In the West, we often view the relationship between India and China uh, through the lens of the US-India relationship and therefore see India as this kind of bulwark against Chinese aggression. But could you explain how the two countries could be seen as partners? Sure. Well, in terms of their geo-civilizational history, they share a re- rich and deep cultural relationship. Even in textbooks in India, when we were kids, we were taught about this Chinese scholar, Fashian, who would come to India, and then he spread Buddhism from India to China. So the cultural linkages are, in fact, quite deep. But in terms of geopolitics, they do converge in many areas. One of them is counterterrorism. 
They held joint counterterrorism drills in 2017. The other would be climate change, because most developed countries have already used up their sort of coal and gases to develop their economies. But now I feel that China and India will work together in terms of resisting climate change blanket rules that are coming out of the West. And their argument is, listen, you've already developed. Now it's our time to develop in a cost-efficient manner. So that's one area. And the other area in geopolitics would be joint investments in Afghanistan, just to keep uh, regional stability. But I think their real partnership comes out in geoeconomics, because their economic partnership is actually quite strong. After America, India, India's largest trading partner is China. Uh, about 14% of its imports come from China and 5% of its exports go to China. Of course, there is a trade deficit, but a trade deficit doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing in geopolitics. It might just be a bargaining chip at the negotiating table. So on a macro level, they are uh, economic partners, but even on a micro level, there's a lot of economic engagement. For example, among the top 10 Indian tech unicorns valued at more than $1 billion, seven of them are backed up by Chinese investors. And if you look at the smartphone market in India, it's completely dominated by Chinese companies like Xiaomi, Vivo, and Oppo, who have an estimate of about 72% of the market share. So in terms of their economic partnership, it's actually quite solid. Yeah, and it really seems that they fit together almost like a puzzle. Like China is at the forefront of the world's production of hardware and India is at the forefront of the world's production of software. You mentioned briefly the US relationship with India. And I think that there is another addition I would add, which is actually how the two countries view intervention, right? Both China and India don't want another foreign power either meddling in or or discussing or trying to influence their own domestic politics. In contrast, the US kind of says, well, actually, what happens in your domestic politics is our is our business. And I think that's definitely come to a head under Prime Minister Modi with the kind of increasing tensions internally between the Muslims and Hindus in India, which could definitely become a flashpoint between the US's relationship with India and I think could push India closer towards China in terms of their view of, of internal sovereignty and desire to prevent external interference. Yeah, I think you're right, because they have a shared history of imperial control. I mean, India was ruled by the British for about 200 years. And the Chinese have their own history with the British, which was, of course, the Opium Wars and the uh, Boxer Rebellion. So I think they have a shared history of imperial control. They know what it's like to be dominated by another country and have their politics being interfered with. So that's some that's a territory that both countries don't want to go into. So maybe now let's turn to some of the ways they each might see the other as an aggressor, right, as a rival. Could you maybe start with China and explain what are some of the threats that China sees from India and more broadly developments in South Asia that may have contributed to recent aggression from China? And then maybe touch on, are these genuine threats between the two countries that are trying to go down different paths? Or is this kind of a mutual misunderstanding about their own security objectives? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think one reason could be India's infrastructure buildup in the Western sector. Specifically, India's working on this road slash airstrip called the Dalit Begoldi. And this might actually upset China because it allows Indian army troops to be deployed faster in the region. And I think this is where the security dilemma really plays out because 
both countries might be engaging in defensive measures like building up roads or airstrips, but this might be perceived as an offensive measure. So the boundary between defense and offense is also undemarcated. And from India's perspective, it is really this defensive measure, right? Because China already has this infrastructure build up just across the border. So from India's perspective, this is kind of matching what the Chinese have already done. Exactly. The Indian narrative is that um, India is playing catch up at this point. But I feel that the security dilemma here is not foolproof because India has been working on this road ever since 2008. So why this conflict is happening now is a question to be asked and it will remain unanswered for the time being. The second reason I think is because India recently in 2019 bifurcated the state of Jammu and Kashmir into two union territories which would give of course more control to the central government over these regions. And this might upset China as well as Pakistan because both countries feel that they have some territorial control over Jammu and Kashmir. So any unilateral decision might be sort of an insult to them. Um, and the third reason I see potentially is the growing India and America partnership, especially when it comes to security. They recently signed three defense agreements, which makes them even stronger security partners. And this, of course, could be potentially irksome to China. Yeah, I completely agree. And I do want to come back to this broader geopolitical context later, especially India's relationship to the US. But how does India view recent Chinese developments from a similar sort of perspective, where China is saying that these are defensive measures or internal internal policies that have nothing to do with India, but India may perceive this as an aggressive move? Right. I think it's the similar argument. Um, first of all, nobody really knows who started the conflict. Both sides will just point fingers at each other. But I think India feels that this might be part of a larger grand scheme that China is hatching up because it sort of contributes to, to the language of the Chinese dream, which is really about expanding its territorial as well as its economic influence. And India might be especially threatened by China's expanding economic influence and security influence in the region, because till about 2005, I would say India had this assumption that South Asia was its own backyard. And that assumption is being challenged now by growing Chinese investments in the region. So one economic partnership that really frightens India is CPEC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And it's particularly bothersome to India because CPEC runs through Kashmir, which is Indian territory. And similar economic investments are seen in the region. You can look at the Gwadar Deep Sea Port. You can look at the Hambantota Port in Sri Lanka. You can look at the growing Chinese-Myanmar partnership in the form of CMEC, which is China-Myanmar Economic Corridor. So all of these compromise India's security because now China might have an access point into India's naval activities in the region. So, of course, this compromises India's intelligence and security edge in South Asia. Also, more broadly, China's Belt and Road Initiative, right, which touches on all of these different aspects that you've already spoken on. But I think it's interesting to think about internal Chinese policy, right, which up until relatively recently had been primarily focused internally and to not try and shake up the world order too much because they benefited from a stable world order. This is what they called the peaceful rise policy. And now that's starting to change, right? And now we're starting to see outside of the Indian context, more investment from China all over the world, really, Latin America and Africa, especially. But the way that these all link back through to China kind of seem 
start to question China's desire to leave the world order as it is and just to focus internally. Now, maybe it's best to take a step back from the security dilemma and to think about the relationship between India and China in a more broad geopolitical context, because we're not viewing this relationship in a vacuum. There are plenty of other actors that are influencing the dynamic between India and China, and they may perceive Chinese aggression towards them as solved by forming alliances with India. And that then sparks or further exacerbates the tensions between India and China, Japan, Australia, to, to name just a few. But this has resulted in a renewed emphasis on the Quad, which for years pundits had kind of said was pretty much redundant. But building on some steady increases over the past few years, this year was the first year that all four members of the Quad, which is uh, India, Australia, Japan and the US were present for a naval military exercise. So could you talk about some of the broader geopolitical trends which may have contributed to a further deterioration of relations between India and China and maybe explain for the listeners what the Quad is and how the Quad relates to that development as well? The Quad is still in its nebulous phase. It's still sort of an informal discussion group almost, a strategic discussion group between, as you said, India, the US, Japan and Australia. And the focal point of the Quad is really to keep the Indo-Pacific waters free and open and dictated by international norms and international law. So that's really the objective of Quad right now. But I feel any student of realism would realize that perhaps the Quad is not as innocuous as it seems and it might be directed towards China. For good reason, because America has its own problems with China, with the trade war. Japan has its own problems with China, with the Senkaku Islands dispute. Australia has a bone to pick with China regarding its cyber attacks that apparently originate from China. And India, of course, has the boundary dispute. So they've come together to keep the waters safe. So India, Japan, Australia and America have come together to discuss how status quo can be maintained in the region. And you're right, it might contribute to a deterioration in India-China ties because it's important to note that the other three countries in the Quad are not continental contiguous neighbors of China. So any level of frustration or any amount of frustration or tension can be released onto India. Perhaps you could say it could be released onto Japan, but I would argue that the continental nature of China-India relations makes it easier to put the pressure on India. So I think India has to be quite prudent in the steps that it takes to formulate the Quad into a more concrete structure. But of course, this is not to say that India shouldn't take any steps at all, because as you know, tete-a-tete, pound-for-pound, India can't take on China alone. China's defense budget is about three times larger than India's. Its economy is five times larger. So this contributes to India's balancing act. So you're right, it might exacerbate the conflict in, in the short term, but it might just strengthen India's hand in the long term. You're right. I, it's definitely a, a balancing act, right, between preventing Chinese aggression and also then provoking Chinese aggression, which is exactly what we're talking about with the security dilemma. And I think one other aspect to add into the equation is the effect of COVID-19. We're not going to know for years, if at all, the impact that COVID-19 has had on the foreign policy and decision making of top Chinese officials. But I think there are broadly two different camps on this. One suggests that the mass amounts of international criticism towards China over its handling of the COVID-19 crisis 
has in a way put China on a back foot this year and has decreased the standing of the Chinese Communist Party. And so some have seen a number of different Chinese aggressive moves in 2020 as the result or as sparked at least by a desire within a Communist Party to distract attention away from COVID-19. Another school of thought says the opposite. COVID-19 is actually the perfect opportunity for China to make aggressive foreign policy moves precisely because everybody else is distracted. But we've outlined a number of areas of strong cooperation between the two countries, as well as threats that they perceive from each other, both real and imagined threats. Um, Complicating that is the dynamic of the international community, which we've also discussed here, which from my perspective has so far seemed to exacerbate the tensions between India and China rather than serve to uh, provide a mediating force between the two. But if you had the ear of one of the two leaders or both in a dream world here, what would be your advice to them as steps to take to de-escalate the conflict? Frankly, that would be a tough job to advise both leaders. But in the short term, especially if it is a security dilemma, that means that both countries need to communicate more. So what that would translate into in the coming years would be to continue negotiations, to reduce troop levels in the flashpoints, and to make sure that both countries go back to status quo for the time being. Of course, in the long term, both countries will have to face the elephant in the room. They will have to eventually talk about the boundary dispute. They'll have to sit down, exchange maps, and sketch out precisely where the boundary is and figure out where my territory is and figure out where your territory is. Of course, that won't be an easy task, especially if it's not the security dilemma at play. One, because both leaders right now are quite nationalistic and they rely heavily on public sentiments. So those type of give and take negotiations become much harder when both countries are led by nationalistic leaders. The second factor is that Any boundary dispute settlement mechanism requires a bedrock of trust. And that trust is quite hard to establish if both countries are not working actively on other aspects of the relationship, like they did in the 1980s, for example. So I do feel that there is very little chance of a solution coming out in the short run, but in the long term, we can be more hopeful. Perhaps other countries can play a role by holding China and India accountable. If China and India do sketch out where the boundary is, I think other countries, especially perhaps multilateral organizations like the United Nations Security Council, can hold India and China accountable for future skirmishes to prevent any such conflicts from breaking out. And if they do, perhaps the international community can impose punishments on both countries in a fair and equitable manner. But perhaps this is just too idealistic and pan-Glossian, but we'll have to see. And that's if the relationship between the two does conform to a security dilemma. But I think there are also ways in which the relationship between the two does not, right? There are real differences between the two, specifically with how they view their economic control and within that, specifically within South Asia. If there are genuine clashes between their objectives... What are the ways that the two can come to some sort of, if, if not resolution, at least to decrease the amount of tension between the two countries? Right. I think 
First of all, the power asymmetry between the two countries has to be resolved because, as we've seen historically, no good outcome comes out of a huge power asymmetry. Of course, the outcome is tilted towards the country which is more powerful. So I think both countries, of course, should continue talking, but I think this could provide a fillip for India to reactivate some of the intra-regional trade uh, organizations, you could say such as SARC, such as BIMSTEC. And then once the power asymmetry has shrunk, then both countries can really look at their common interests and work on that. They have to sort of double down on their convergence points, like counterterrorism, like climate change, like joint investments. Perhaps that could be the way to go in the future. Do I see that happening right now? Probably not, for two reasons. One is that a lot of countries have seen that the relationship between economics and security is inextricably linked. It's quite hard to pull the two apart. So most countries will be cautious in dealing economically with China as well. The second reason is that in India domestically, public sentiment is quite riled up against Chinese economic investments. Uh, There's the whole notion of boycotting Chinese goods. So that might make it difficult, but Potentially, in the future, they could double down on joint investments once they're on an even playing field. Quite a pessimistic outlook, but I completely agree with the recommendations that you have. Um, I think this is definitely going to take a strong diplomatic effort from both countries over many years uh, to really get this to a position where the two can cooperate and kind of withdraw back to the positive relations that we have seen between the two in the past, really. But that's all we have time for today. I really appreciate your insight and analysis and hope to have you back on soon. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you, James.